everybody and welcome to another edition of the Warren Football Index Tactics Podcast, where once again I'm joined by smouldering Stevie Grieve. Stevie, how are you? <laughs> Great introduction. I'm good, thanks. How are you? <laughs> I am good. I'm good. I. Um, are you away in Philadelphia or something for a, a conference, is it? I, the, it's called the NACAA Convention or whatever it's called, but it's changed its name to United Soccer. So um, Apparently there's like 10,000 people go, so it's nice to kind of see some people that you've like spoken to over the years online or whatever, you meet them there, which is nice. So, hi, I've got a, a few folk have been sending me texts on morning, like, what time are you arriving? Where are we meeting? Blah, blah, blah. So, it's very good for networking. Ah, good, good, good stuff. Well, uh, today our focus is on Liverpool, and for anyone that might have heard our last podcast on Manchester City, then you know what to expect. But for those who didn't, we're going to take an in-depth look at Jurgen Klopp's team, how they play, what makes them so good, how they could possibly improve, and maybe even how teams might look to beat them. So, much like last time, before we get into any proper specifics, I'll ask you, Stevie, uh, how might you describe this Liverpool team? And in short, what is their overriding ethos and what are their identifiable qualities? I think the first thing I would say about the team is it's kind of similar to Dortmund and it's exciting, it's fast. There are long periods where it it doesn't always look organised like Man City do or like Barcelona do, but the the way that they play is, is so difficult to play against because the sheer pace and the energy and the enthusiasm of the players is is incredible. So, yeah, I think they're they're one of the best teams to watch. But Jurgen Klopp is a coach who it doesn't matter what he comes up against, he seems to find a way to know how to beat it, but beat it by being attacking rather than looking to park a bus like some other coaches tend to do. I absolutely, and I think that's um, I, one of the words that often gets associated with Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp's size in general is frenetic but I think that can sometimes be a bit misleading because I think that makes them sound a little too chaotic because within when you look at it at first it just looks like a bunch of people running I suppose you know if you want to get really basic about it but obviously within that there's a lot of organisation you know it isn't random they're not just headless chickens you know but I'm sure we'll get onto that uh, as we get further into the pod but before we get on to any sort of negatives or question marks and before we even get into their you know, remarkable game against Manchester City that they had the other day there, uh, I have to ask about a player that many Liverpool fans and neutrals like myself they feel that he's a combination of like underrated and also maybe quite misunderstood because he seems to fly under the radar when it comes to analysis on things like match of the day or you know post-match on Sky Sports that kind of thing and uh, I'm of course talking about the man with teeth brighter than the floodlights at Anfield Roberto Firmino <laughs> so what what makes him so special and why is he so important to the way that this team plays I think when you look at his defensive output first the way he goes to press he's so good at dropping in and blocking passing lanes whether it's to hold a midfielder or to a centre-back so his defensive position is really good and the timing of when he goes to press and how he triggers the press and then leads everybody else to go and the angles that he runs at, he's very different from a lot of strikers. So that being integral to how Klopp wants to play is obviously a big, big factor. But the way he links the game, I think, is, is really, really good. If we remember when he played for Hoffenheim, he was more of a link striker. He could score. He scored some goals, but I remember looking at his numbers before he joined Liverpool and... He had a very high defensive rate for things like tackles, which is obviously weird for a striker. So all these things kind of fit perfectly into how Klopp wants to play. But when he drops in between the lines or he turns or he makes runs into the channels, he's one of these forwards who, he's not just a guy who plays inside the box and is a clinical finisher. He could be a better finisher, but he gives you a lot more things than what some guys who are just pure goal scorers give you. And I think when he links the play, 
he's got two guys who are absolutely perfect to play next to him in Salah and Mane because of the pace and the way that they run and they're so aggressive. But also, he's good at playing almost like a number 10 to try and link the game. Then you get into positions where he gets himself in the box. So I think he's one of these players who always flies under the radar because he's not a glamorous name. He's no Brazil's number 10. He doesn't do the spectacular things that, say, Coutinho might do. But there are very few strikers who can completely fit into the way Jurgen Klopp wants to play and give him everything that he needs to a required level and not have the team suffer, which is kind of why Daniel Sturridge, apart from being injured all the time, doesn't really fit into the system. Benteke never fitted into the system. And Firmino has, has been absolutely fantastic for him. I, and I think, because um, as you said, he, he's definitely, he's a million miles away from being what you know one might describe as a, a typical number nine. But I think the term false nine gets quite overused. And I don't think it necessarily really applies that much to somebody like Firmino. Because as, yeah, as much as he does like drop deep and, you know, he can sort of become that number 10. And then he's got like maybe the inside forwards either side of him, you know, that kind of thing. But I would I would say, and I've read this in other pieces as well, and like most notably by, you know, WFI's own, like James Norton and S. Sam Maguire wrote pieces about it where they described him as a, a Ramdeuter, you know, not to get too uh, hipster about it, but, you know, that sort of Thomas Muller sort of role where he just sort of, yeah. he, he, he knows exactly where to go and he exploits space. And it's 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 far more of a, a mental game for him than it is anything to do with um, technique or anything. But he obviously has you know fantastic technique as well on top of that. But um, would you say that's a, a, an accurate description of him? I would. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of the term Ramdeuter because I know it's a German phrase and people look at you. Like, <laughs> it's not a phrase you would use in everyday common language. It's, it's, a, it's a bit football manager, you know. It's a very much football manager thing. But in in the sense that, does the description fit the player? I absolutely does. He doesn't start wide. He starts in the middle and he kind of wanders around. We saw with the, the goal that he chipped over Ederson. He's running behind. He's made a diagonal run to recover a loose ball and then bullied John Stones a little bit and then made a fantastic finish. Whereas Thomas Muller would start wide and end up in the box and be free from his position. Firmino has to be more disciplined centrally to give him the focal point, but more often just to occupy the defence and create space for other players to try and move between the lines or to come from deep or make runs behind. So, yeah, I think he's not a guy who's ever going to be given lots and lots of, of plaudits, but he's integral to that system. And I think if they are going to challenge for the league, he needs to stay fit. And when we talk about challenging for the league, I'm obviously mean next year because the league's done this year. But no. I don't think that they're that far away. I think Klopp's got to a stage where he's got everything he needs. He's slowly built together a, a high tempo, very fast, very physical, very pressing oriented side. But a team who are good enough in possession that they can break down teams, but also quick enough that if they want to play without the ball and play in transition moments, that they can beat most teams. So I think that the team he's putting together, Firmino is going to be a part of it, but they, my feeling is that against certain teams, they do need a penalty box striker, maybe to play alongside him, to give them something else, especially if Naby Keita was to join in midfield. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you, you touched on the City game there, and that's probably a good time to transition over to that. Um, so we're obviously recording this a few days after the 1-4-3. Uh, what a game. You know, it's, it's probably, for me, it's probably my favourite game in the Premier League, at least uh, this season that I've seen. And uh, I'd like to quote WFI's very own Umara Naz uh, as she opened her match report on the game uh, brilliantly. She said, 
if you had just landed on Earth from a planet somewhere in the furthest reaches of Andromeda and knew nothing about how Liverpool played football, then their 4-3 win over Pep Guardiola's Manchester City would have been the perfect game to analyse. It quintessentially encapsulated the best and worst of Jurgen Klopp's side, scintillating going forward and hopeless in defence. Now, before we get into maybe the latter part of that, the, the defensive sort of problems that they've had. What did you think of Liverpool's performance? Um, so let's focus on the positives first. Uh, Klopp himself said that the pressing was from a different planet, which kind of ties in with what Amara was saying, really. And um, I think that's a fair assessment. And so as much as this might be a condescending question, maybe you can explain to us why not just any old team could go out and do what they did against Manchester City, at least not without a shed load of specific training. I think like Liverpool's pressing in midfield and at the front is really, really good. Um, even the fullbacks are good at jumping up onto the midfield line, but you look at the defensive line and the defensive the defensive line worries me because the centre backs are so exposed and they're not the best defenders at defending space and defending one v one. I think if you look at all the teams who are really good where they can play with two defenders, press high, dominate possession, play in transition all the stuff that you'd associate with the most successful teams, the two centre-backs are nowhere near good enough to play like that. They need protection. Joe Matip, when he was good for Schalke, um, they played in a 5-3-2. He was one of the centre-backs, and he has a lot of protection around him, in front of him, and he's good with the ball. He's a decent enough defender, but he's not going to win you the league. Even if you look at Virgil van Dijk, Virgil van Dijk's nowhere near good enough at bringing the ball out, in my opinion. So the the struggles that they're going to have to enhance this style of play means that they're going to have to get somebody who, at right back, I think, is better at bringing the ball out from the back than Gomez is or better than Matip is or better than Van Dijk because if they lose the ball through bad passing or they become predictable through easy-to-defend passes from the back line, the defence or the back two now have to cover so much space. And if you look at guys like Sergio Ramos or Gerard Piquet, when the ball goes wide, they're happy to defend on the touchline, 1v1. If you look at Jerome Boateng, he's happy to defend 1v1. He's happy to defend in the air, happy to defend in the box, but also incredible with the ball. And I think Liverpool, even though they've spent £75 million on Virgil van Dijk, I actually don't think that he's he's the answer to it. They've spent all this money on a guy because there's a lot of hype and he's maybe the best defender they could find, but he isn't really what they need, I don't think. I think that they need a guy who's a leader at the back who's really experienced is going to be happy to defend wider. Maybe that that's a, a really, really difficult thing to find them, which is why they spent so much money on Virgil van Dijk. But when people say that they're bad defensively, my first thought is that the goalkeeper position causes um, a level of indecision around the centre-backs because they don't know how high the defensive line should be or they don't know what the body shape should be. They don't know if somebody cuts in from the left and delivers across to the back post with their right foot, if the goalie's going to come for it or not, is he going to punch it, is he going to stay in his line? I think that the goalie causes a lot of indecision between the centre-backs. So there's there's aspects where you can say in their midfield press they're good, but if they get broken broken down centrally, the centre-backs are not good enough to defend all that space on their own, they need more protection. Um, but also when they when they do get hit on the break, they don't like defending on the touchline. So obviously no centre-back really wants to be dragged out there, but there are cases where you're attacking so much that you're maybe in a 2-3-1-4 or something like that. And the centre-backs mm. are going to have to do it. I don't think that Liverpool centre-backs currently are good enough to do that. So maybe there's a, a player that they need to find in the summer. They definitely need a new goalkeeper. The midfield press, like I said before, is incredible. 
and also when you look at the way that they press, I think it's based on whenever a horizontal pass is played into the third man who's facing either forwards or backwards, not not so much side on, but whenever their body shape isn't completely set and they go to pounce in front of them, I think that the press is that good because Klopp is that good a teacher and that good a coach and getting them to do it. But it doesn't marry completely up with how the centre-backs work. So there's still little issues that they've got to deal with there. But I think that he's shown the template for, and I know a lot of people have said, oh, there's going to be millions of articles. That's, that is genuinely the template to play against Man City, to play in transition, to block up the spaces, to go and hunt them down when they're in possession and then allow them to try and build up through the left-hand side rather than the right to allow them to switch. Like we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, you can see the way that Liverpool have set up. The problems that Man City have are defending in transition. The problem that Guardiola has had because of the way he wants to play, all the weaknesses are the same in all the clubs, Barcelona, Bayern, Munich, Man City when they lose the ball in the midfield line, you can hit them 3v2 on the counter-attack all the time because they play so open, which is a natural consequence of how they want to play, and it's fine. I think everybody must accept that. So Liverpool have shown that you play a transitional game against them, you hunt them down, you let them build up on the left and try and win it there, and then be really, really aggressive on the counter-attack. And what I found interesting was, even at even at 4-1, a lot of coaches would ask them to block up and then set their traps and, and try and defend and be a bit more cautious. They were still trying to hunt it down and win it and attack with five players at 4-1 up. And I thought it was interesting that they left the back four in place. Robertson played really deep. Gomez played really deep. They played really wide. Um, I think we saw on on Sani's goal that Gomez played so wide that when the press was made in midfield and the ball was switched, he went out too early and too quick. And then the centre-backs either expect the defensive midfielder to fill in and they shift wider. But even then, you see them individually. There's nothing they can do. Sani cuts in and it's a fantastic goal so it was one of those games where every aspect of the good and the bad of, of Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool were shown in one game but <laughs> a thrilling fantastic match Now you, you sort of you touched on it a few times there uh, individual errors basically and well now this isn't necessarily in relation to the City game because the, the, the one the one player I'm going to I mean, you could say I'm going to mention him. Somebody else might say I'm going to pick on him, but whatever. The point is, he didn't actually play against City. Now, for me, individual errors are one thing, but in my opinion, like Liverpool's defensive problems, they do go far beyond who plays in the back four or who plays in goal. Because as much as you know, Van Dijk is better than Lovren or someone like Allison from Roma is a better keeper than Mignolet or Carius, surely they'll continue to be exposed if they're being shielded by somebody like, let's face it, Jordan Henderson, right? Because his positional sense from all the games that I've seen and from what I've heard from people that watch even more local games than I do because they're actually fans, his positional sense is laughable at best. And while some people might say he does get unfairly picked on, I think the fact that Liverpool's captain is a liability is something that needs to be addressed. So, I mean, talk to us about that and feel free to tell me I'm wrong and it doesn't, it's not all a, it's not all down to him, obviously, because again, similar things happen against saying he didn't actually play. But, if you've got any clues to how a manager as good as Klopp can routinely pick somebody who is not suited to that, because he just he does not have the positional sense. He's just the sort of guy that points and, and he looks like he's giving orders and he doesn't know what he's doing because he doesn't know when to drop. He doesn't know when to, when to go up. It reminds me a bit of, you remember during the Euros and like Roy Hodgson realised he was on the big screen? So he just started randomly pointing to make it look like he was doing something. It reminds me of that in the midfield. Yeah, so I realised that Henderson didn't play against City, but 
believe it or not, Liverpool have actually played other games this season and last season, and he is routinely, if not obviously, because he's not doing something like a Gerard slip or you know he's not giving the ball away, he has been quite culpable in my opinion. So if you could talk to us about that. Yeah, I'm no, I'm, I'm never going to be a fan of Jordan Henderson. I think when I, when I look at him, when I watch him play, and I think to myself, if somebody was going to win the league, you would never be in the team. He'd be one of those backup players. You'd be like a James Milner at the stage of the career he's at now. A guy who's going to come in, do a wee bit of a job, try no give the ball away, try no den and fancy. But when I watch him playing, I never ever feel secure that Liverpool are going to be completely dominant. And for a guy who's the captain of one of the biggest football clubs in the world, I think that that's shocking. That Jordan Henderson, as much as he's maybe a lovely guy away from football and tries his hard, he certainly seems like it. He certainly ah, seems he's like it. Probably a lovely boy, and and he's he's a good player to a certain point. Liverpool want to win the league. Liverpool have won five European Cups. He is not a player who's ever going to win the European Cup. He's not a player who, in my opinion, will win the league. He's a shadow of any. You know, middle to top level Liverpool midfielder. Now, an absolute shadow. He's a big athlete who, who's got a reasonably good range of passing, almost no creativity. He can put in a reasonably good cross. He'd probably be a really good right back, but for a Premier League potential winning team, I don't think he's ever going to be good enough to be a starter. I don't think that he's good enough to be a captain as a player. I think when you look at a lot of captains across the world, they're either incredibly strong, well-determined people who inspire things with other players, but they've got the ability to drag their team out of a hole or to take them to the next level. And I don't think he has that. Probably a nice big guy and a reasonable character in the dressing room, but a top, top-level footballer for one of the best players, best teams in the world. I'm, I'm not having him as a captain. And I think when you look at the impact Emery Chan had in that game, Emery Chan was... Incredible, positionally perfect, sensational. Well, blocked every passing lane, and then when you saw him coming off, I think he came off on what seventy-eight minutes at four-one. All semblance of control in midfield was lost. Obviously, I think the change of bringing Bernardo Silva on and having him drift in between the lines was causing a bit more of a problem for Andy Robertson because Raheem Sterling maybe I think the crowd getting on his back early doors kind of went against him, but. Emery Chan, for me, was was absolutely incredible and showed why Juventus want to take him. And for Liverpool to allow him to run his contract down to now in the hope that he might sign a new one, I think is ridiculous because he's a guy who might cost 50, 60 million. He's that good. And if Jordan Henderson is the guy who's going to be filling in his place next season when Emery Chan's not there, I think it's laughable. I think that you need uh, to just use him as a squad player and if they're going to build around this this absolutely perfect template of a 4-3-3 which they have and they bring in Naby Keita and they're going to use um, Oxley Chamberlain as another midfielder they need to get somebody who's positionally perfect who has the same athletic capabilities as Jordan Henderson because right now he's getting by on athletic capabilities no by understanding how to play football positionally as well as, as Emery Chan or Busquets or some other defensive midfielder who's among the best in the world and I think Liverpool have got weaknesses. They've got. They need a new goalkeeper. Like I've said before, I don't think Van Dijk is the answer, despite how much money he's, they've spent on him. And he's an obvious upgrade on Lovren. But if if they can protect those two, the two centre backs, and they can protect the goalkeeper, it will come from having a really high level defensive midfielder to allow uh, the quicker players, the more athletic players, to set the press, set the traps, 
to make the transitional runs. And somebody like Emery Chan is an absolute must for them. The fact that they've got him and he's perfect for it already and shown as much, but they're going to lose him in a free, I think, is a huge blow for Liverpool. And again, I genuinely don't think that Jordan Henderson is the answer for a club like Liverpool. If he was playing mid-table, if he was playing for a West Brom, if he was playing in the Liverpool supporters are probably like this. But if he played for Everton, it would probably be acceptable. But the fact that he plays for one of the biggest teams in the world, he's the captain, I think it's ridiculous. Aye, and uh, I think it's, it's, it's maybe... Well, actually, before I even do that, I'll sort of play devil's advocate a wee bit because I maybe, maybe part of the reason that uh, Henderson's been playing ahead of Henry Chan typically, I mean, because he has been rotating, you know what I mean, Billy? It, it, it tends to be a lot of the time that Henderson will start ahead of Chan. And maybe the reason behind that is because of Chan's contract issues and, it, it, and it's the point where it's like, well, I don't want to rely on a player that might not want to be here and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, d- despite the fact that his contract's running out, you know, he's, he's been playing so well and that doesn't seem... I mean, you could, maybe, you could argue... Well, maybe he's playing so well because he is trying to ensure the fact that he does get a move to a Juventus or a, a Real Madrid or an excellent away. But that, to be honest, that doesn't really matter because for the rest of the season, you're going to need somebody in that position that actually knows how to play the position well. And whether he's got ulterior selfish motives for playing well, I think the point is he's going to be playing well anyway. So I've asked a few uh, sort of Liverpool people, so to speak, you know, uh, like, like journalists and that around the club. Is it purely a financial issue? Because it seems a little simplistic because you'll see a lot of fans coming out and saying, oh, just give him what he wants, just give him what he wants. And it seems like, no, it's not just money. And if anything, it does seem that part of the reason that he isn't quite committing yet is... It's kind of, he can't believe that he's not the outright first choice. So, I mean, maybe without him saying it, he's probably sitting there thinking, how is this Jordan Henderson guy in the team ahead of me? Like, what is, I, I, yeah. don't, I, don't, I don't know what I need to do here, you know? So, but hopefully, for Liverpool fans' sake, you know, if he does get a run in the team and he does feel like he is now the, the number one choice, maybe he will commit to the club. Uh, but but so sort of, sort of expanded on that, um, that defensive midfield role that the Liverpool play, I think it's probably fair to say that it's, it's maybe not your typical defensive midfield role because the, uh, there is a degree of like interchangeability in that midfield three by Liverpool because they always, I would say, because you need to plug gaps whenever somebody's pressing. So if, if like for example, Chan does press up, then somebody else would maybe need to like fill in the gap, be it another midfielder or like a centre back stepping up, all that sort of stuff. But I think, and again, I, I don't. I mean, I'm not trying to zero in on Henderson too much here, but I think in that position as well, if because not only are Liverpool going to be a team doing the pressing, they themselves are going to get pressed. And I think if there's one thing that Henderson isn't, he's not a press resistant player. I think he doesn't necessarily have the the sort of technique um, to really properly shield the ball, or even in, uh, the. I guess you could say intelligence to an extent, but that's probably more of a general point as to how English midfielders are taught from a young age, as opposed to him, because it's not just him that's like that. It's you know, there's a lot of players that I think. That I think the next generation of young English players will be kids who who are more press resistant. I think. I agreed. Years gone by, the game was a bit more direct, and the way people coached was more direct. So you have players who come through who are more direct and. They, they lack the vision or they lack the understanding how to play two or three passes to try and open up the opponent like maybe Spanish players do. But you see now with the under-17 and under-20 World Cup that a lot of these young English kids coming through now, are they are very press-resistant. They can carry the ball, they can get in and out of tight spaces as you saw at the weekend. Jaden Sancho was doing it for Dortmund and Phil mm. Foden's obviously been fantastic when he has played for Man City. So 
I think the next generation of young English players coming through will have that. And I think when you see the work that guys like Saul Isaacs and Hurst are, are doing with individual work or in different clubs, there are guys who are doing ridiculously good work, which nobody knows about until kind of these kids start coming through between six and ten years later. So we might not see it now, but that I think that that generation of Jordan Henderson's coming through will be gone soon and we'll have more of these really intelligent number six players or defensive midfielders who bring the ball out but who can get away from pressure because they spend more time on it. A positionally better guys like Harry Winks, I think, might become a little bit of the template for that because Jordan Henderson, as far as I know, was a right midfielder in the youth team and started off his career at Sunderland as a right midfielder. Yeah. You would think that he would be more skillful and technical in tight situations because he's you would think he'd be used to going by people, but it looks like he was a kind of touch and cross kind of guy. So you see him in midfield, he can he can cross the bottom or side of the park if you like. But I think that he struggles with sharp movements, using his body shape, or to throw players off, or by himself half a yard of space in the manner that somebody like Busquets might do, just to be half step to the left, move the defender, open up the space. And I think Liverpool really, really need somebody who's a higher level than Jordan Henderson. I would agree with you to the extent that maybe I'm a chance looking at going, I'm not a number one starter here because the captain of the club's in the same position as me and I'm 10 times better than he is. But he's the captain, so he might get a game and he's maybe looking at going, if I go to Juventus, am I going to play? Probably. So I'm going to go to a far, far better team, get a game, probably be paid slightly more money and not have to fight for my spot with Jordan Henderson, which should never happen. I and you would expect him. I've got Juventus. He would play, especially because it seems that uh, well, not that he's he's ancient or anything, but it seems that injuries they are kind of taking a toll on Sammy Kadira because you can tell he is he has properly lost a bit of pace about him when you see him in midfield. He's still a great player. Don't get me wrong, but I think Henry Chan would maybe would arguably take his place in the team and you know play alongside Pjanic or something. So I he he can't necessarily blame him for maybe you know thinking the grass is green on our side you know but but uh, aye, so, uh, aye, just to stop throwing Henderson under the bus as much as we can because you know it's, uh, I'd, I'd just like to make clear that we're only using Henderson because he is at a club we're talking about Liverpool and we're talking about that position and it's for me uh, that's kind of going to make or break a lot of their success because uh, like I said as much as you do or as much as you could improve your central defence or your goalkeeping position I think that position is so key to how they play that they have to get that right um, because it's all cliche but it's where they say all in midfields where the game's won and lost and um, I think there's a sort of glass ceiling if you've only got a player of that sort of capability and I think it is important but so as, as I was trying to get to earlier on actually um, so am I right in saying that for endless for Liverpool team that their defensive midfield uh, role isn't exactly a typical mid, uh, defensive midfield role like there's a, a lot of different um, responsibilities that come with it compared to you know any other team yeah I think there's a lot of more complexity to it because if they attacking transition and lose it, there's a defensive transition aspect and then the holding midfielder, if the timing is right, might be one of the ones that goes forward so the, the one that sits and covers might be the player who's playing right side central midfielder has to drop in and fill in and then the recovery runs are all different but when you look at the way they go and press, like we spoke about Firmino earlier on, if they set a diagonal press and we, we look at a press in four diagonal layers the defensive midfielder will be the one that fills in the third layer, protects the centre back screens in behind any forward passes and then 
moves up to try and press things on the second line and if possible. So it's quite a complex role for a defensive midfielder in the manner that they want to press set traps and try and win it back because sometimes you have to track a runner onto the defensive line or sometimes you have to track a runner into the channel and then try and screen the pass into them or you track the run and then just pass them onto the throwbacks and shift over. So the way that Liverpool try to defend and try to press and set traps and then try and force the ball back or allow the ball into certain areas, the defensive midfielder is actually quite a complex role and I think that Emery Chan is a very, very clever player. He might not be as athletically gifted as maybe somebody like Jordan Henderson or Alex Chamberlain or Naby Keita, but positionally the timing of his run, but as well as that, when he times his run into space to try and defend, or to defend space or to track somebody or to block passes, his body shape's also very good, which helps cover um, or block off any lines that might be available. So whether he turns his shoulders more to the left or more to the right or keep them straight forward will affect the kind of angles that he can defend or the, the lines he can block. So I think that it's an understated position. It's very, very difficult to play in that role. I think when the midfield three are kind of interchangeable and they, they rotate positions a little bit, then the complexities come in during transition phases. Do you go to the ball? Do you drop? Do you slide? Do you protect the fullback? Do you protect centre-backs? Do you jump up to press? There's so many variables depending on every single situation and the players need to know exactly where to be. Some of it, or a lot of it, comes down to being on the training ground, but there are aspects where, in a match, the good player will instinctively know exactly what to do in that moment, um, whether they've done it on the training ground or not. And I think that's where the complexity comes in with being the defensive midfielder or central midfielder for Liverpool at this point. I absolutely. And uh, you, you mentioned Navi there, and you've mentioned it a few times, so it's maybe maybe a good time to sort of mention him. Um, so he is joining in the summer. Uh, there was talk, you know, he might join in, in January, but that seems to have been put to bed. So how do you think he's going to come into this team in the summer and improve it? Because I, th- I think, uh, obviously not everybody, there's a, a good amount of people that have got a really good idea what sort of player Kate is, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily quite understand what kind of play there is because I think he can very easily get pigeonholed as a oh he's an energetic midfielder you know or he's just he's box to box blah blah I mean it's like have you seen him play you know I mean look at the guy's dribbling ability it's phenomenal <laughs> and and like, the way he can he just he goes past entire teams uh, and he allies that with his work rate and he's got a you know just really good touch just really good technique in general so as much as they're different sorts of players do you think it's a fair assessment to say he might take on more of a sort of Coutinho role? Um, no, no. I, like The Coutinho role to me is kind of like a, a, a wide number 10, if you like, where he tries to drift in and be creative, but be a bit more free defensively and just block space and maintain a position. But I think Naby is like, he's a one of a kind. Genuinely, he's, mm-hmm. he's a player I can't really say he is like him and put a name exactly on his. In the sense of the dribbling, he might be a wee bit like a Luka Modric in the sense of the dribbling. Maybe not quite as good as Iniesta, but a player who can eliminate two or three players and run from midfield. He's got the box-to-box ability that a lot of central midfielders have without the technical ability. So when you look at his dribbling and you look at his work rate, they're obviously fantastic. When you look at his defensive position in Leipzig playing like a 4-4-2 or 4-2-2-2 quite a lot of the time, and the defending a, a, a two-man midfield against what is a lot of the times against a team that plays with a three-man midfield or a winger coming inside and making it four is really difficult. And I think his defensive position is good. Sometimes he's a little bit overly impulsive and he'll press when there's 
when there's no real need to press, maybe because they've worked on it in training, that you shut down this player and he's got a long distance to cover and his enthusiasm lets him do it. But he's one of these guys who defensively is going to make them better because he's he's very, very good at pressing. His defensive position is good. The guy's like a bully, so strong. So he's going to be able to bully some people in midfield and win the ball off them quite a lot. But when you look at the way he uses the ball, it's... His attacking output is fantastic. Can he play one-twos? Yes. Can he play through the lines? Yes. Can he dribble past multiple players, which is rare to find these days as a ball-carrying midfielder to that level? Yes. He'll score you goals. Sometimes, if you could say there's a weakness in his game, is that sometimes he will run down alleyways and maybe no find the, the easiest pass, or sometimes he can be a bit um, impetuous and always want to go forward when there might be a, a phase of 10 seconds of circulation needed just to reorganise the shape but that might be a systematic thing to Leipzig because of the way they want to play so I think that he's going to become if he's not already one of the, the best midfielders in the world is he a guy that can jump Liverpool from where they are now to potentially challenging for the league I think absolutely is Klopp the right coach for him I would say yes I think there are certain teams who would benefit massively from signing Naby Keita, Arsenal being one of them. But would he would he improve as a player at certain clubs? And I think he's chosen the right club, the right style of play, for him to kick on and become one of the world's best, because I think potentially is he's at that level. And it's, it's interesting that um, Ted Knutson, who we had on this like maybe, maybe 18 months ago or last year, he'd been going on and on and on about him before he'd even joined Leipzig. He mm-hmm. said at Salzburg he was potentially one of the best players in the world. I remember speaking to Nikos Overhill, who'd also been on this podcast, and he'd said, I'd spoke to him online, Navi is incredible, easily going to be one of the best players in the world. Rennie Maric said it, and he'd, he'd been working in Salzburg at the time and thinking the Youth Academy, or did some study visits at Salzburg, and this guy was just unbelievable, an amazing player who could do everything. And I think it's, I think it's amazing that you have people who work in football who know so much more than some people running clubs or some coaches about recruitment. And a guy like Naby Keita, who you could potentially have had for 8 million, 10 million, 12 million before he joined Leipzig, that now you have to spend 50 million on him. So I think that when you look at where a player, his, his journey has come from, there's a lot of things in, in English football or even in British football, Scottish football, where they'll go, oh, I'm not sure he's cut out for the league based on where he's playing. Sometimes it's just like talent sticks out so much and somebody else has seen it because they've got all the underlying numbers that back up what you think and what you see. Sometimes you see a player and you go, this guy's incredible. And then you look at the numbers and you're like, well, actually, he wastes a lot of his final passes into the box. So not a lot of his passes lead to shots. Actually, he loses the ball quite often in midfield. But I think he's a really, really good player. But you still sign him based on your gut instinct. Sometimes your gut instinct is then backed up by numbers that say, my God, this guy's going to be a superstar. And I think in Naby Keita's case, he might be kind of a breakthrough player for clubs who are looking at recruitment and looking at different ways to find players or different ways to monitor players and look at leagues through which normally clubs are only going to look at. You look at players who have got a certain profile and background and experience and Naby Keita's Guinean playing in the Austrian league with the potential to be a superstar. No, normally what you look for, you normally look at like Spain under 21s or something like that, go, that guy's going to be amazing. Who does he play for? Malaga, all right, he's going to cost 20 million. There are, there's talent all over the place. 
And I think Liverpool at this point in time are doing a really good job in finding it because how many big clubs would they sign Firmino at 25 million, even though he's Aye. a fantastic player? Mohamed Salah, people had doubts over, even though he proved at Roma he was one of the best wide attackers in the world. Sadio Mane, also from Salzburg, when he went to Southampton, I think for like 10 million. There's not a lot of clubs who would have taken that risk on him, even though it was clear that the talent was there. And again, Andy Robertson, he's playing in a bad team at Hull. They get relegated. He does all right. Liverpool get him for eight million. So I think Liverpool, they've done a lot of really good things in the transfer market. And I think Naby Keita might be the best one that they do. And he might be the guy that propels them into potentially winning the league, which is ultimately what they're trying to do. Absolutely. And um, I think it's anybody that, like I've said it before, but anybody that follows me on Twitter or whatever, they'll know that I, when it comes to the Premier League, I don't have a horse in that race, you know, like I don't support any clubs there. I just I watch it as impartially as I can. I do gravitate towards certain teams that maybe play in a, a sort of aesthetic way or what I would what I would maybe describe as a morally good way, you know. And uh, at least, you know, on the pitch. But I would say that I'm so excited to see Navigator in, in the Premier League next year, and I'm so excited partly because I think he's going to surprise a lot of people because they just they don't quite get how good he is like yeah. they don't they don't quite get especially that dribbling part I think I mean I you, know, you might have seen the odd gif here or there on Twitter or something you know it's like oh that's good but I mean he does it routinely all the time and he just he completely bypasses a midfield the opposition midfield just by ghosting past them like they're not there and it's great and like I said yes sometimes he will go down a blind alley rather than taking the easy option and stuff but I, I guess that that's that's a downside to when you have a player like that that is capable of doing phenomenal things and that's kind of why I, I, I sort of made the I mean I probably worded it quite badly but it's maybe why I made the comparison with Coutinho because I, I was more talking about when Coutinho played in the midfield three you know behind the front three where it's he's going to be the the one you know alongside you know, fingers crossed for Liverpool alongside Chan and maybe like Oxley Chamberlain, he might be the one that's going to do that completely unexpected thing. The thing that is going to just, especially if we're sitting against a low block or something, you know, the one that's going to make something happen for them. But speaking, of, uh, I mentioned Oxley Chamberlain there. Uh, I, I, I think part of Klopp's makeup as a manager is that he routinely improves players. You know, we've seen it at Mainz, we've seen it at Dortmund, and uh, we're seeing it at Liverpool now. So it sounds like a simple thing. But when you look at somebody like Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain or even Andrew Robertson, like you mentioned there, both of them joined in the summer and took some time to adjust to Klopp's methods. You know, in the first few months, they either went on the team or they weren't really impressing that much. But now they really are making a mark on it. And they've, they've been sensational in recent weeks, especially when you compare their off-the-ball movement from pre-season to now, uh, or even early in the season to now. So this is just yet another example of like how and why coaches need time, yeah? Because it's you, you can sign these players, and I think, because everybody knows that football, especially from a fan perspective, is very, very, very short-term. It's now, now, now. And if people come in and they don't do it now, they'll think, what are we doing spending that money on them? You know, especially like somebody like Chamberlain, who cost, uh, was it 35 million? Was it 35, 40 million or something like that? Uh, and, uh, you know, and I, I, I'll totally admit, when that deal went through, I was thinking, hold on, what, what's this? I, I don't quite see how he's going to fit into this team. But you now see the way he plays. He, he plays on this sort of like, 
right central attacking midfield role when they've got the ball, but he's also he uses his energy that you've seen at, at Arsenal. And actually, I'm quite intrigued because you know you're an Arsenal fan of TV, so I'm interested to hear your take on Oxley Chamberlain at Liverpool. And is it actually kind of frustrating seeing how well he's doing? It's frustrating because he was always a frustrating player. Um, very mm. wasteful in the final third, crossing generally terrible, final pass generally terrible, doesn't he score goals? But you could see that the raw ability was always there. It just needed to be harnessed properly. Whether it was playing as a right wing back or as a right sided central midfielder. I remember like we lost the game, I think, 4 1 away to AC Milan in the Champions League, and he started the next game in central midfield. And he was the best player in the park by a mile. And from that point on, I was always like, right, this guy's going to break through at some point. But systematic at Arsenal for maybe the last eight years. Nobody's improved. Arsenal, or Arsene Wenger would buy a player who'd be a good player and they would never kick on. Alexis Sanchez, I would say, has regressed in the times being at Arsenal. Mesut Ozil regressed. Granit Xhaka is nowhere near as good as what he was when he was at Munchen Gladbach. Jack Wilshere, potentially one of the best players in Europe as a young guy and I know he struggled with injuries, but if he'd been coached in a different way, he could be a Barcelona-level player. Somebody who's stand out and everybody's going, this guy is incredible, he's, what a player he is, because he's got everything there, the guy's unbelievable. He can mm-hmm. do everything that you're looking for, ball-carrying midfielder, creative, plays one-twos around the box, he can score goals, we saw the goal against Norwich where he run for the half-wheel and played five one-twos or whatever. Jack Walsh has not kicked on. So Oxlade-Chamberlain is a player who, I think quite rightly, was going to run down his contract because there's like a lot of players at this point in time, there is absolutely no hope and no future at Arsenal for you if you join that football club at this point in time until Wenger goes. And I think Chamberlain, joining as a 17, 18-year-old, he's wasted, what, four or five years of his career by not playing at Arsenal, by being underused by by his own level of performance, being largely frustrating. But you put him in a system, you give him a job, you explain things clearly to him, and you make everything else work because everybody knows where they are. Klopp's idea of playing is very systematic. There's a lot of fluidity within it, but it's, these are your jobs when we don't have the ball and these are the jobs that people do when we do have the ball. Arsenal, it's kind of, oh, just do what you want. You're a good player. You'll figure it out for us. And I don't think that he suited that. And I think in this Klopp system where they're building a team which could potentially be the quickest team in Europe, one of the most powerful teams in Europe, and one of the most dominant in transition moments, across Europe, he fits into that perfectly as a central midfielder. If he, Like what you said, if he plays right side central midfield, he can defend as a right midfielder. When somebody tucks in on the far side or if the winger is caught high up, he can defend as a central midfielder going to press. Because he's so quick and so energetic and so enthusiastic, he'll go and shut down people in areas where they don't want you to shut you down, but it causes a decisional crisis in players who are not quite as athletic. Some players are not quite as athletic go, I'm never going to get there. And if I do try and get there, the ball's going behind and I'm not quick enough to get back. He can do both. And I think Jurgen Klopp is going to be a guy who turns raw potential and a player who's largely infuriating into one of the most exciting midfielders in the Premier League. And I think the potential for him has always been there. He's just been so wasteful on the ball for various reasons. And I think we're going to see a massive improvement over the next couple of years in them, down the clock. Exactly. And it's weird because I, I'm, I'll always be a guy that will hold my hands up and say, I was wrong. And I was totally wrong about this move in the summer because I've, I've just felt 
what a waste. I, I don't understand why they bothered. But in hindsight, it really is kind of obvious. You know, when, when you look at his raw ability, his, his characteristics, if you combine that with someone like Klopp, you will get what he's doing now. The, 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 the player that Oxlade-Chamberlain is, is now is exactly what should come from that equation, you know? And it is, it's, it's actually really pleasing to see because I've always felt that he has been at, or at least, sorry, a few years ago, he was a lot of potential, a lot of potential, a lot of potential, but then uh, it just never kicked on. And so I felt it was just a... a I wouldn't say a busted flush, but, you know, you felt like you'd maybe already peaked, you know, and there was no point in him really going anywhere else. But it's it's, it's a massive testament to the player himself and to Klopp for um, basically turning a bad situation into a good one. He's, he's totally embraced his new environment. He's embraced everything that his manager's telling him. And um, this is now the fruits of both their labour, you know. It's, it's brilliant. And uh, hopefully, hopefully you can continue on with that. I think... Another player I mentioned in the last question was Andrew Robertson. And shockingly, I'm going to mention Andrew Robertson now. I mean, I know that the the, the listeners here, you know, maybe expected that to be the first subject, considering that it's two Scotsmen talking here. But, I mean, come on, I think we have to. I think even I have been, I wouldn't say surprised, because I think basically every Scottish football fan knows how good Andy Robertson is. But... I don't think we quite realised how good he could be at this level. Um, are you surprised? And do you think he can he can maybe even improve even further? Because I think there's still little things he maybe has to improve, obviously, because it's still quite early in his career. I mean, it's, you know, it's barely half a season and he hasn't really played that much up until Alberto Moreno's injury. But um, do you think, basically, he's good enough for this Liverpool team? I think he's he's a he's a better option than Alberto Moreno. I think I'm right. Alberto Moreno is possibly slightly better going forward, but he's also much 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 worse in defensive transition and when he times to go and defend against somebody because he leaves spaces all over the place. So I think Andy Robertson is a more sensible option to play than than Alberto Moreno. Where he can improve is, I think when he gets caught one v one against somebody. I never, ever feel completely secure that he's just going to take the ball off somebody every single time. Because when I see somebody running at him, I think to myself, like, he's not strong enough, or he doesn't look strong enough, he might well be, but he doesn't look strong enough to just kind of cut across the front of somebody, use his body and just block them and take the ball off them like a lot of big, strong, physical left-backs are. Because he's not a big, strong, physical guy. He's quite lightweight. But what he makes up for that is, I think, his, his body position is good. He decides when to press or when not to press or if he's just going to try and block across or is he going to get tight in somebody's face and leave a wee bit on them? And I think he's good at deciding quickly what type of pressure he's going to put on somebody. Is he going to force them in? Is he going to force them out? Is he going to tackle with his right or left leg? Is he going to use his body, which he doesn't use very often because I don't think he's particularly strong. But that being said, I, I get the impression that there was one phase of that match where everybody in the grounds chanting for Andy Robertson because he's pressed four passes in a row. He's run through four passes because there was no need to break his stride. And he kept going and kept going and kept going. (laughs) Even though, right, even though you could say, why is he just chasing after that? He's chasing after it because he's not having to break his stride. He's not having to change direction. Man City would normally be a team who, when they're building up or moving the ball, they'll make you 
stop, slow down, break, change direction and stop you from pressing. They never did that in that face. And Andy Robertson has got the crowd on his back, up chanting for him, getting everybody behind the team because he's chased after four passes and run about 60 yards. As much as we probably go, there's no need in that. That signals the way that they play and the enthusiasm all the players have and the belief they have in the system and it helps the other it helps the teammates win the ball back because he can force the ball in a certain area so and even though he ended up he ended up in literally the opposite position of where he's supposed to be you know like left back was it top right basically you know but he, he did he forced the back he forced the ball back like 60 yards as well you know so there is like a method to the madness as well you know <laughs> along with what you're saying like he, he kept the ball as far away from his own goal as possible so, I mean, fair play to him. I, th- I think if there's one thing that I would like to see more of him is when he gets in the last 20 metres, can he whip a ball between the six-yard box and the penalty spot for somebody to tap in? I've never really seen him put in um, a low cross, which has just been being able to tap it. If you look at somebody like Kevin De Bruyne, whenever he gets within 20 yards of the goal, you know he can batter it into a specific space and somebody can... It just takes a tap in for him to score. The delivery is so good. I would like to see him improve his delivery. I think first touch and technically he's fine. He, he's safe with the ball. I'd like to see him being a bit more aggressive with the ball and trying to be a bit more creative with it. But maybe as a left back, that's no completely his job. But when he gets in the final 20 metres, I would like to see a better final ball from him. I think he tries to play quite a lot of cutbacks into people, which is fine. But um, I, would, I would really, really like to see him add the ability to whip a ball perfectly onto somebody's head or into a position where they can just tap it in because as much as his crossing is decent if he was to make it slightly better or for it to be slightly more productive or for people to have more of a chance of scoring off them I think he he then becomes a massive offensive weapon for them rather than a guy who just supports the attack and is good at helping the attack is solid defensively I think he then adds that bit to his game and then people start looking at him as among the best left backs in the league I I I, th- I think he's a really I think he's a really good crosser, but I don't think how can I put this? I'm trying to think the best way to word this. I think he basically he can put in really good crosses, but almost the wrong type of cross for that situation. If you know what I mean, so like he, he can if he's looking in the box and like you know let's say like Mohamed Salah like is, is like ghosted in from like the back post, right? He can, he'll sort of put in a really good cross, like almost like a, a Beckham cross, but it's like, but that's that's he's not going to feed I, off that, though. He's not going to power a header in. He needs it Aye. to play in the, in the goal first time. Exactly. So I mean, I think, and I remember uh, a few months ago, uh, I mentioned him before. Uh, Sam Maguire wrote a good piece about it, and he was basically talking about uh, one of the reasons that. Uh, this must have been like October or something. So one of the reasons that Klopp was favouring Moreno was not only is Robertson still got a lot to learn about, you know, the general Liverpool style of play, but also the fact that Moreno probably does not decision making, but he, he does play better passes, more Liverpool style passes in the final third than Robertson would do. Um, but I think that's something that you can see in in recent weeks that Robertson is improving on and I've always been a huge fan of how he attacks a half space like I, I love fullbacks that, that are not afraid to come narrow and you see like because when you play for Scotland he scored that goal against Lithuania I mean phenomenal I mean he's, he does he does have really really good technique to play like one twos and like sort of play play shots like that as well so I think he maybe just needs to improve his decision making in the final third sometimes because I think he does have the technique there and he does have the, the capability of being a, a really potent offensive weapon as much as he does um, on the back foot defending near his own penalty area so it's really 
as an obviously biased Scotsman, is very pleasing to see because my, my, my heart just sort of swelled with pride watching that game and seeing everybody on Twitter singing his praises because it was that feeling of like, you know what, we've been seeing this for years. He's brilliant and it's uh, it's good to see that he's at that level. But uh, I think yeah. I think the last thing the last thing we'll do in this pod then because we've we've mentioned him a couple of times briefly, but I think we have to give a little more attention to Mohamed Salah because he's been he's been brilliant this season. I mean there's there's no other word for it. He's been brilliant. And I, I you touched on it earlier saying that maybe people had already sort of written him off to purely because of the spell he had at Chelsea that wasn't really that great but the time he spent in Serie A and he just he was so good so good and I know Liverpool spent a lot of money on him but it's now looking like a bargain especially in this current market you get a player like that for less than 40 million quid Oh, wow. So you just talked yeah. to us about Mohamed Salah. Mohamed Salah? Right, that's it. Mohamed Salah. Talk to us about him and uh, just what makes him so good. What, what does he bring to this team? I remember when I, when I worked in Switzerland, he played for Basel and he was incredible. So quick, so strong, could dribble with attack space. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of guys that leave Bal and become fantastic players across Europe. But Mohamed Salah was always one, I think, where, where Bao supporters would be like, this guy's amazing, he'll go and play at the top levels in Europe, he'll be one of the best players in the world. And he joined Chelsea and it was like, that's completely the wrong club for him to join because they're just going to punt you on loan and he's going to mm-hmm. lose a couple of years of his career. But he's gone to Roma and been unbelievable. By far the best winger in that league, in my opinion. The way you run at people, the amount of goals he would score. And I find you miss chances, That's that's fine, but if you're, a, if you're a winger or striker getting that many chances, you're obviously making the right runs, you're making the right decisions, when to go, how to get into the space, playing one-twos, whatever, try to run past people with the ball one-on-one. He always showed a level of composure and a bit of a bit of flair to make open a little bit of space for him to rip the ball in the far corner. And I think when you look at the way he plays, again, Ted Knutson would put out loads of radars and you watch him, you go, he's amazing. He's an unbelievably good player. And then all the data backs it up. So you go, how much are you going to cost? And then when somebody says to you, 35 million, you're like, whoa, get him signed. <laughs> get him signed. Don't even think about it. Just pay him whatever he asks for. Get him signed. He's going to be incredible. And I think as much as Mohamed Salah is fantastic, right, I actually am a huge fan of Sadio Mane because he's one of these guys who... He gets in the right position, the timing of the run. Sometimes he jogs into the space and he just arrives there or he hangs his run back behind the, the attacking phase and then somebody will cut inside and then he's just there because he's such a clever player. And I think when you look at those two, whether they both play on each side and cut inside on their better foot or they make different runs in behind, they two work as a pair really, really well at running beyond. One can look for the other, the other one. If one cuts in, the other one knows to look for the passing behind. Or if one cuts back and their body shape's the wrong way, the other one knows how to be in position to receive a pass, maybe from channel to channel. And it works really well with Firmino. But I think when you look at Mohamed Salah and the amount of goals he's scored and the amount of assists he's made, if you look at the way he played for Roma, it's not a surprise. He's been incredible. And he's been incredible for a long time. And then when you look at how good he's been, then you go, right, how many teams... Will he fit into absolutely perfectly? And how many coaches' system style of play will he suit absolutely perfectly and make the team better? And then you go, Klopp. That style of play suits him absolutely perfectly. 
and then Klopp buys him, and then he's the best winger in the league, in my opinion. And I think the amount of goals he's scored, the amount of assists he's made, his defensive contributions, the way he presses, and then you saw the goal that he scored at the weekend where he's come oh. onto the loose ball, and then he's, he's, I don't know who it was, it might be an Emery Chan, but he's kind of just told him, get out the way, controls the ball, scores. <laughs> and it's just like, there's a level of, I hate saying it, but there's a level of confidence bordering on arrogance of, I know that I'm better than whatever left-back I'm playing against, and I know that I'm going to get two or three chances, and I know I'm going to score. And it's getting to the stage where the players who are technically that good, who are physically fantastic at running ahead of the game, and then the style of play suits them. A lot of the guys that have got all the other aspects that Mohamed Salah, the style of play in the club and the coach doesn't suit them. He's found the right place to be to show how good he is. Would he be that good at Man United? No. Would he be that good at Chelsea? No. Would he be that good at Arsenal? Probably not. Man City, maybe. But Liverpool is the absolute perfect place for him. And I think he is, again, I like a player who's going to drag them from where they are to potentially winning the league. And he's shown it on a weekly basis now. And I think it says a lot about how Mourinho has changed in the last five or six years that so many players that he had as young guys who had masses of potential who could have been among the best players in the world. And had he built a legacy at Chelsea for 10 years, he could have De Bruyne, Salah, Lukaku. He could have all these players and have built one of the best teams in Europe. And his style of play doesn't allow for guys like Lukaku or Mkhitaryan or Salah to reach their peak. And I think it shows you the way that coaching is going and the way that recruitment is going, that players like Mohamed Salah, which other people in and in England would have discounted ignorantly, are now becoming some of the best players in the league and tearing the place up and making the league better to watch. Stevie, I can't think of a better way to end the podcast than bigging up Salah and then criticising Mourinho. I mean, that for a Liverpool podcast, I can't think of a better way to end it. So, uh, I, if you, do you want to plug your, your website, your Twitter, all that good stuff? Aye, so I'm going to the coaches' convention, so if anybody wants to meet up and say hi and have some beers, then, then we're all good please just DM me or whatever. But also my e-learning course, which I've been going on and on and on and on about for such a long time, I'm hoping it's going to be ready today. Excellent. It should be ready maybe tomorrow, maybe Thursday, but I'm hoping for today. But yeah, so if if anybody if anybody's interested in that, which a lot of people are giving them an emails and texts, I get it about it. Um, I'm going to put out a code for people who listen to World Football Index to give them a discount code in case they're interested. So that should be out hopefully this week, hopefully today, depending on how the background infrastructure is run, but hopefully today. But um, yeah, my Twitter is at Stevie Grieve. And yeah, thanks for having me on again. Absolutely, that anytime, anytime. You know that it's been a it's been a great conversation again. Uh, you can follow me at Odnedge. That's O D N E J. You can follow One Football Index at One Football I. Check out all our podcasts. Uh, we've had the South American one coming out recently. Um, we've obviously got this one because you're listening to it. There'll be a, a scouting one with um, Lee Scott, which will be great. I'm really looking forward to doing that one. Um, it's because we're still we're still in January here. We're just we're sort of slowly but surely getting back into things. So it's nice to do some podcasts again. And uh, oh, and don't forget to check OneFootballIndex.com. There's some really good articles going up there recently. So yeah, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for being here, Stevie. And we'll catch you next time.